Hi everyone, I'm your host NG, and welcome to the 42nd episode of the podcast, Sounds About Right, audiobook self-assentence in the world. On this episode, I was joined by Jacob Harold, author of the book, The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact. In the book, Jacob delivers an expert guide to doing good in the 21st century. You'll explore nine tools that have driven world-shaking social movements and billion-dollar businesses, tools that can work just as well for a farmer's market or a fire department or small business. And he describes each of these tools, including storytelling, mathematical modelling and design thinking in a standalone chapter, intertwining each with a consistent narrative and full-colour visual structure. The toolbox strategies for crafting social impact is an essential blueprint for anyone interested in improving the world around them and is an incisive strategic guide that will prove to be indispensable for everyone who seeks to collaboratively build something better. It was great discussing the book with Jacob. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So the first thing I actually wanted to ask you is what inspired you to write this book? I've had a very lucky career the last two decades working to make a better world in a lot of different types of organizations, in small activist organizations, in sophisticated consulting firms. But the idea for this book really came from when I was at a big private foundation, the Hewlett Foundation which was sitting on $10 billion a year, giving away hundreds of millions of dollars each year to address inequalities in education, the climate crisis, poverty, et cetera. And we would just sit there in our fancy office in California, and the smartest people in the world would come and ask us for money. And they would bring these different ways of thinking about how to build a better world. And it was such a privilege. And so the main thing that inspired me to write The Toolbox was that I wanted to share what I'd had access to that not everyone else had access to. There's another thing, though, that drove me, which was a lot of the folks who came were absolutely brilliant, but they had one idea, one way of thinking about social change strategy, how to build a better world. And sometimes that was too narrow. No matter how brilliant they may have been, how good that idea or that approach was, it wasn't enough. The world was too complicated for one approach. And so I wanted to pull together multiple ways of thinking about doing good work, whether you're in the nonprofit sector at a foundation or in business or in government or just working in your community. And there are many subjects covered in mainstream media highlighting the call for change, whether it be the treatment of ethnic minorities or LGBTQ plus rights. Why is the toolbox strategy necessary? Well, we can just think about those two issues that you just mentioned. And how does change actually happen? And it's a multidimensional process. You know, some of it is about telling a new story about how we as a society expand what we even mean by we. You know, who is part of our community? And are we going to welcome in people who are different or not? So some of it's story, but you can't stop with story. You also have to think about the actual results that people are getting, the actual, for example, health disparities that we see across racial categories. We can look at the numbers there and recognize that there's work to be done. And then as we think about how do you make change, Some of the other tools that I talk about in the book, we can bring them to bear. Things like behavioral economics that really help us understand the way that people make decisions in a complex world. Or a tool like design thinking that helps give us a process for how we're going to design a new program or a new service. Or there's a chapter on institutions. How do we build a lasting institution so that the change isn't just temporary, but is something that gets embedded in society. So, you know, whatever the issue is, you know, whether it's questions of equality or whether it's environmental sustainability or even just 
I want more beauty in the world, people who support the arts. Each of these is a complex issue, but we actually have an abundance of ways of addressing it. And these days, I think people can feel a little bit depressed about all the things happening in the world. And I want to remind them that we have this extraordinary library of knowledge that's been developed over centuries as people have experimented with how do you build a better world? What do, the, what do those strategies look like? And that we can draw from that even when the problems seem insurmountable. Speaking of the library of knowledge, can you describe why multiplicity is the essence of toolbox strategy? Yeah, it comes down to one thing, which is complexity. The world is simply too complex. There's the old parable of blind men feeling an elephant and you know one feels the trunk and says it's a rope and another feels the legs and says it's the trunk of a tree. And there's actually profound wisdom in that, that these different approaches, different angles on a problem give us a much fuller picture. And I'll give an example. So think about there's the effective altruism movement in philanthropy, which brings a highly quantitative approach to thinking about how do I give money away? And Sam Bankman-Fried, recently disgraced founder of FTX, was very much subscribed to that. And I think there is great insight and wisdom in the effective altruism world. But if you only bring that kind of framework, if you aren't also thinking about institutions, political power, storytelling, then you often end up with such a narrow view that other aspects of the problem, you become blind to them. And so it's my hope that if people bring multiple perspectives, they won't get stuck in the crevice of just one idea because the world just needs more than that. We need to be honest about the complexity and that no one approach is going to be enough. Absolutely. Like what I got from your book was that the idea of just social change and the strategies needed for it as well. A lot of the ideas mentioned in the chapters kind of interchange with each other as well. It's not just one linear approach that one should take, whether it be, as you said, storytelling or altruistic means. It's very multifaceted, isn't it? It is. And think about if you're trying to change the world, what you're doing is you're going against all of the history and influences and systems that have led to where we are right now. And so it's actually going to be usually pretty entrenched. There have been forces that have come together to lead to a certain situation, whether that situation is good or bad. And so if you want to change that, and whether that's a question of racial justice or climate change or healthcare disparities, you're going to have some work ahead of you. And you need to be able to draw on as many different approaches as possible. Now, all that said, there are nine different tools in the book, storytelling, mathematical modeling, behavioral economics, design thinking, game theory, community organizing, markets, complex systems, and institutions. And that's a lot. And like, no one is going to be able to use all nine in every situation. Just like if you're fixing something in your house, you don't use every single tool in the toolbox. You maybe need a drill and a screwdriver, but not a hammer this time. And that's fine. People do that all the time in life. And I think we, when we're thinking about trying to make a better world, can do the same thing and figure out, oh, this is a case where I really need to think about how to get organizations to collaborate better. So I'm going to need to use game theory. And I really want to think about how we're going to scale it. So I need to think about markets and I need a good story. So I'm going to think about storytelling. I'm going to focus on those because those are appropriate for the particular situation. And I think all of us do that all the time in life. And it's just how do we apply that to the bigger problems that we face as a society? So 
Jacob, another thing I wanted to ask you actually is, so why are both the linear and cyclical mindset necessary for strategic action? In some cases, we can really think linearly, one step at a time, a, a straight line process to addressing a particular issue. Say, for example, how are we going to vaccinate a given community? And it really is just a series of, well, we need to do one vaccination at a time. You add those up and you get a straight line. But sometimes it turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. And you can't just assume that a straight line is going to get there. You need to authentically wrestle with people's hesitations or fears or supply chain difficulties or whatever it may be. And so you have to keep learning along the way. And that's what I call a cyclical mindset, where you're constantly trying to say, I'm going to act, I'm going to learn from that, then I'm going to adjust. You put those two together, the line and the circle, and you get a spiral. And it's not always a totally straight route, but we can still get where we want to go if we're able to combine that sense of intentionality. I know where I want to go. I have a hypothesis of how I'm going to get there with a sense of humility and learning and listening that along the way, I'm going to pay attention to what's happening around me so I can adjust and get better with time. And again, this is something that we humans do all the time. There are lots of cycles, the cycle of a day or the cycle of a week or of a year. We're used to that kind of cycling. And on New Year's Day, maybe reflecting back on the, the year before and what we want to do differently. But there also is this sense of, at best, at least intention and direction. I think it's possible for us to combine the two. And also understanding just your current situation is very important for future success to be possible, right? For sure. And, you know, we are never able to understand everything. We can try and use empathy and put ourselves in other people's shoes and listen to them, but we're never going to fully recognize what their experience is like. And we're never going to be able to wrap our minds around every aspect of the economy or every curve in culture that gets us to where we are. But we can do our best and we can take some of these tools, not just for planning, but for understanding and to give us a logic of like, how do I describe what's happening here? Oh, this is really a question of people responding rationally to these particular incentives, but they don't have this other information, for example, or they're using this story that they have in their head. And even though that story doesn't actually reflect reality, that's the story they have. And so we're going to honestly try and understand that. And so optimally, you're using these different kinds of tools to understand where you're at and then where you want to go and how you're going to get there. Now, Jacob, I want to talk to you about specific chapters within the book. And in the chapter Reaping Benefits, you mention the illusion of independence is the reason why social change is difficult. Would you mind elaborating how this is the case? Yeah, it's easy for us. We all have consciousness. We're all individuals who are perceiving the world through our own senses. And all that is true. And we do have individual consciousness. But it's pretty easy to think that that means that we're not reliant on or connected with others. This has all sorts of political implications. You know, it shows up during the pandemic, for example, when I think a lot of people in society realized this concept of an essential worker. The people who were delivering food or changing the sheet at the hospital or making sure that the buses were running, that too often are invisible in our society. It became very clear just how dependent the rest of us were. Now, we should have known this, but the pandemic forced that realization upon us. But this is not just a moral position or one that helps us understand where we're at. It's also important for knowing like, oh, how are we going to get to a better place? 
who are we going to be dependent on to get there? Whether it's a nonprofit that's dependent on funders or on volunteers or a social enterprise that's really dependent on their customers if they want to succeed. And so I think we can hold on to a sense of individual consciousness while still acknowledging both ethically and strategically that we we really count on others. Hmm. And I also liked the chapter, So First, the story. That's because I feel like stories are underrated. And it's not a surprise why many people insist reading stories to children help with their development progression. But why are stories something you highlighted in the book, Jacob? I think there's certainly the fact that much of how we understand the world is through stories. And I talked about two different types of stories. There's the story in the sense of a progression with a beginning, middle, and end with a hero and their companion. Sometimes there's a villain. But then there's also the invisible stories that are just the way we understand how the world works. And both of those are really important. But this is important for social change strategy because we can force ourselves to think, all right, let's actually use some of the concepts from storytelling and apply them to strategy. So for example, who really is the hero in the story of, say, a manager at a food bank? So the manager of the food bank is gathering lots of food and distributing it to people in need. Who's the hero? The easy answer is, well, I'm the hero, right? I'm the protagonist of my own story. But maybe the hero is actually the mother coming in to get food for her kids so that she can be sure that they are fed while she's out trying to get a new job. Or maybe the hero is the volunteer who's coming in and actually making it all happen. And then who's the enemy? I mean, is there actually an individual enemy or is the enemy the situation? Or maybe the enemy is one particular policy that if it were changed would really shift things. And so just using these sort of basic elements of storytelling, not only does it help us communicate better, but it also can help us, I think, think more clearly about about strategy. In the chapter, Thou Shall Not Design for Thyself, you say that vision can be its own kind of ignorance. How can what you describe as design thinking techniques prevent this from happening? Yeah, this is something I've struggled with personally because my last job where I was CEO of GuideStar, a big data platform for the nonprofit sector, I had this big vision on how the whole system would work better and there'd be a supply chain of information. And a lot of that came true and we were able to use a lot of that. But in some ways, my vision was so complete, I didn't allow enough space for listening and enough space to realize, oh, there are cracks in this vision that actually don't work. And so a lot of the danger of having vision is that it leads you to not listen. And one thing that's really powerful about design thinking is that it forces a process of listening and it folds in to the strategic planning journey a series of pauses to make sure that you're paying attention. And so I think if you do that well, then you can avoid some of the dangers of vision. That doesn't mean you don't have a vision. That doesn't mean that you don't have a sense of where you want to go, a new story to tell, but that you're just intentional about listening along the way. And why is empathy the secret weapon to ensuring we do this? With empathy, you know, not only are we listening, but we're feeling. We are actually trying to understand the emotional experience of someone. And that's a really powerful thing. And it can be a very scary thing. Um, And it can be a dangerous thing because people can use that knowledge to manipulate people. Or sometimes if you have too much empathy, you end up really suffering yourself. So it's a dangerous tool 
but it's an incredibly powerful one as well. And when it's properly wielded, it brings both insight and I think compassion. And that's another theme throughout the book is that often the strategic and the ethical are connected and that by showing that compassion, you actually get a better understanding that lets you make a better decision and have more impact in the long run. Also, Jacob, in the chapter Win-Win, you mentioned the game theory, and you did mention game theory when you was listing out the uh, chapters earlier as well. But would you mind describing what this is and how can it be used to get us on the right social path? Game theory is a science of decision-making when there are other people involved. And the classic example is called the prisoner's dilemma, where you have two people who have been accused of a crime and basically the prosecutors are trying to play them off against each other. And if both of them stay quiet, they'll both get a modest sentence. If both of them rat on the other one, they both get a bad sentence. And if one rats and the other one doesn't, then the one who rats gets off and the other one has the worst scenario. So it's kind of this awkward situation where you don't know what other people are going to do. And it's just a model. But it reminds us that often there are cases where if we don't ask people, if we don't have the right kind of flow of information, if we don't think about long-term relationships, we will end up screwing over other people and hurting ourselves in the process. And game theory is basically a mathematical modeling of that fact. And there there are other models besides the famous prisoner's dilemma. But we can either use the fact that game theory shows us, well, if I'm thinking in the short term, I'm going to screw the other person. And the math is clear about that. But the math is also clear that if I can communicate or if I think in the long term, because I'm going to interact with this person over and over again, that that actually creates an opportunity to collaborate and it creates a real incentive to collaborate. And so to me, the insight of game theory is that if we actually think long term, if we think openly, if we think with some degree of forgiveness and some degree of hope, we actually can get better outcomes for everybody. And that's just really important, for example, in thinking about how do we get multiple nonprofits to work together? And that takes some work, but it often leads to much better results for communities. So what are strategies to help enable collaboration, would you say, Jacob? So one that I've used in my own work is to really say out loud what a division of labor is within a community. That there might be, for example, I use the example of multiple nonprofits, one nonprofit that's really focusing on this neighborhood, another one on that neighborhood, Or one that's focusing on mental health, another one is focusing on addiction treatment, another one is focusing on sexual health, et cetera. And often people know what the division of labor is, but until you really say it out loud, it's not as clear that collectively you could be greater than the sum of your parts, that the right kind of alignment can really have concrete impacts. If, for example, multiple nonprofits are serving the same person, How are they aligned in a treatment plan, in scheduling, et cetera? So there are very concrete implications of whether or not folks are working together. So you say it out loud, then you put in a process that makes sure that you remember that you're going to be interacting over time. Because again, if you only think about that next decision, you're probably going to act only in your own interests and not the broader interests. And then it can be very helpful to identify a person or entity that isn't part of your community to kind of just help guide the process. So all these are things that you you sometimes see, but I actually think it's powerful that game theory offers a science that shows us why these things work and why they can be really important. So lastly, I have another question for you. And 
it's kind of putting you on the spot, actually. So you've added many quotes in the book to help, in some cases, encapsulate what's being said. And I just want to ask, of all the quotes in the book, are you able to mention three that stick out to you and why? (laughs) That is putting me on the spot. That's a great question. Let me think about this. I do have a lot of quotes because I wanted to show the ways that other voices have had similar ideas. And sometimes they're in tension with what I'm saying. Sometimes they're even contradicting me. And I think that's, that's awesome. You know, one I'll mention is from the poet Amanda Gorman, who says that to be accountable, we must render an account. And that to me is just really important, the need for saying out loud what you want to do to be able to then have that sense of, of accountability. There's a quote on the back from Rabindranath Tagore, which is a longer poem, but you know, I'll just read a couple parts of it. Who can say if there is written on your forehead the invisible mark of the triumph of some great striving? And there's more in the quote as well, but it's just a a reminder of the potential that I think we all have to do some good in the world. And then another one I'll mention is from Octavia Butler, that change is the one unavoidable, irresistible, ongoing reality of the universe. And I think... That was true when she said it, but it's becoming even more true. And we just have to do our best to be ready for that and to equip ourselves for a changing world and to know that it's still going to be possible for us to do good in it, whether we're in in government or nonprofits or business or just working in, in our communities, that we have a lot to draw from. That was Jacob Harold, author of the book, The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact. The book and audiobook is available now, which I do recommend you to pick up and read or to give a listen to. A big thank you to Jacob for coming on the podcast and thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate the podcast and check out some of the previous ones if you haven't done already. And until then, I'll catch you on the next.